自動でお風呂を沸かしますお風呂の線は来ましたか自動で
Yeah, because um, yeah. he does say he's uh, there's nothing wrong with a, a decent man, a morally upstanding man reading material like that for the sake of educating themselves. Oh, he justifies he? himself, as they did right into the 19th century with the uh, the secret room of the British Museum, you know, which contained all the sort of phallic statuary and, and things that were considered inappropriate for the public. There was a there was a secret museum uh, at Naples, and it's exactly the same thing. All the erotic art that was found at uh, Pompeii and Herculaneum. Uh, so there's a statue of uh, the god Pan, um, sort of he's getting off with a goat. Yes, that's yeah. extraordinary sculpture. I mean, yeah, he really is. They really are in a loving embrace. Definitely, yeah. 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 And that that is the same thing that happened. And Pompeii had these erotic frescoes, and they had locked metal cabinets put over them. <laughs> But if you were a gentleman and you paid a small fee, they would remove the locked metal cabinet <laughs> from the top of the fresco and you could see it. But if you're a woman, no dice, I'm afraid, Anna. Mm. The interesting thing is what you're saying is the first recorded instance of buy anyone buying pornography. But apparently what happened was most pornography at that time was circulated in the form of manuscript miscellanies that people would keep. People would keep a, a miscellany of uh, uh, these kinds of things, but also recipes and political tracts and school exercises. And they'd just keep them all bound together for themselves and to give to their friends. But there was only ever one copy of each one. Right. I've got one here. The, the, this is a guy named Anthony Scattergood, who was a theologian at Trinity College, Cambridge. <laughs> and uh, he, in his miscellany, he has an erotic poem called On Six Cambridge Maids Bathing Themselves by Queen's College, June the 15th, 1629, <laughs> which is quite good. And then immediately after <laughs> that is a recipe that says, For the eyes, take snails and prick them through the shells with a great pin, and they will issue out a fat water. Drop the same into the eyes evening and morning. Wow. And, you know, you so go. that, frankly, probably less attractive than the six... Uh, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, that was the kind of thing they just gathered together in these miscellanies. And often in verse form as well, because if it was in verse, yeah. it was a sort of a little bit less sort of graphic. It was a bit more arty if it was in verse. So yeah. the best-selling pornographic verses of the 15th century uh, is a book called The Tale of Two Lovers. And do you know who wrote it? Oh, that was the Pope's one, wasn't it? It was Pope Pius II. So <laughs> this was, to be fair, before he became Pope that he wrote this book. All the Popes have a past, don't they? So there was a there was the goalkeeper and there was the, the Hitler Youth guy. Who yeah. Was, you know. <laughs> and, and the one who wrote, yes, a tale of two lovers. <laughs> <laughs> that is saucier than most Popes. It's Samuel Pepys. Samuel Pepys. Samuel Pepys. <laughs> um, I think my, my favourite line in all the diaries is he, he woke up and he was going down into the cellar and his exact words are, and put my foot into a great heap of turds <laughs> by mistake. Uh, <laughs> it's just very funny. One of the but only things I knew about Samuel Pepys is that he buried his parmesan during the Great Fire of London. Oh yes. I did not know that he was involved in the Great Fire of London as in he, he w- went to he visit... He started it. He went, <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, he went to visit the king halfway through and um, advised the king, well, you need to pull down the houses where the, yeah. fire, where the fire hasn't got to yet and make what they call a fire break so it doesn't mm. spread outside that area. But didn't he say he also said that the Fire of London went on for months and months after we thought it did? So I think it was still burning in March what? the following year. What? Yeah. No. Isn't that weird? And it started in September, so I no. think... Yeah. Really? Strange. Very strange. Another thing I didn't know about him was that he sort of wore spectacles, which he was very impressed by and thought worked really well. But what they were was um, paper tubes, <laughs> which had been invented <laughs> uh, a few decades earlier. And they were just rolled up bits of black paper and they were wider at the eye end than they were at the reading end. And so they focused <laughs> right in on oh you know tiny lettering. I and they it do kind of work. I guess it gets rid of um, you glare. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's a small aperture, isn't it? Oh you know how with the camera... People don't use old-fashioned cameras, but with a small aperture on the lens, you get a much greater depth of field, yeah. and you're just yeah. using that effect. It was like said that, that Nero had emeralds polished as glasses so for his reading, but he was Nero, yeah. and that's probably a made-up story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
Okay, let's move on to fact number two, and that is from Piers. Yeah, this is me. Um, my fact is that if 50 people swam continuously for 15 months in an Olympic-sized swimming pool, the water would boil. <laughs> <laughs> Have you worked that out? Yeah, I've got the physics. The yeah. thing is, the thing yeah. is obviously, it's rubbish. <laughs> physics, as you know, basically doesn't work. But so what we do, <laughs> it's, it's an idealized model. But what this comes from is there's a chap called James Joule, after whom the Joule is named, mm-hmm. uh, named. And a Joule is the amount of energy it takes to lift a tomato one meter from the ground. But the thing How is, big a tomato? A tom- 100 gram tomato. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> standard tomato. Oh, your yeah, standard yeah. European ISO tomato. tomato. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, it's also the point is, it's also the amount of energy released when you drop the tomato back to the ground. And that each of those is one joule. And the point about that is conservation of energy. You can't create or destroy energy, only convert it from one form to another. So if you have people swimming around, th- they raise the temperature of the water. And he demonstrated this. He had a tank, which was sealed, and he had a paddle in it, and a rope, which a bit of ro- uh, string or something that came out of the top, over a pulley. And then he had a weight on the end, and the weight drops, turns the paddle, and he measures the, wa- the temperature of the water and, and is able to demonstrate that the the amount of energy from the dropping weight is exactly equal to the amount of energy from the increase in temperature ah. in the water. Right. So, Does it matter what stroke you'd be doing? No, not <laughs> it's really. It's just about the bo- your body heat. It's not, well, that's the other thing. Is it's not about your body heat. I've, for the purposes of this calculation, I've excluded the body heat effect. Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Have you excluded the fact that if you put people in 50-degree water, they tend to sort yeah. of stop yeah. functioning, okay. certainly <laughs> after 15 <laughs> months? I've got, I've got various things that <laughs> need to be left out of the calculation here in order to make it work. <laughs> One of them is that the water in this idealized swimming pool doesn't radiate heat away. All, the heat right. that they create all stays mm-hmm. there. Yep. Uh, right. the, the other is that so it's nothing to do with the body heat. Um, and the other thing is I, that you have to find a swimming pool that's open on Christmas Day. Because otherwise... Uh, <laughs> right. That is down. the hardest thing, so it? as opposed to the laws of thermodynamics, <laughs> which are easy to move around. I guess it's a Lido that we're looking for? Yeah, yeah. Lido. Yeah, and the other, the other thing, actually, which makes it difficult is that an Olympic-sized swimming pool, did you know this does not have a standard size? Because really? the, really? the depth is not standard. Uh, it can, be, it can be anything from oh. two meters to three meters. The pool in my illustration, I'm not going to actually run through all these numbers, they're so on LinkedIn, but <laughs> it's, it's two meters deep. It, in order, it starts at 20 degrees. In order, it would take 11,200 hours, which is 466 days, to raise the temperature by 80 degrees from there. Wow. And the other thing, of course, you've got to contend with is at what point people die. <laughs> Yeah, you can replace yeah. them though, so you could just have substitutes, yeah. presumably, yeah. just yeah. stand but in. Are you getting yes. people to dive into a swimming pool which is 90 degrees already yeah. and yes, swim? Presumably, yeah. full of faecal matter yeah. and yeah. urine. <laughs> if, yeah, if you could put me down for an early shift, please, Slash, that would be great. So many caveats. There's an entire yeah. thesis of caveats for this. But, yeah. but once we've overcome them, yeah. this yeah. is tea yeah. making. Yeah. Tea yeah. making for the future. Uh, guys, yeah. a fact yeah. about swimming, which yeah. does not. <laughs> I'm afraid it's not in the idealized realm of physics, but it is an actual fact. So I don't <laughs> <laughs> <Come on. laughs> okay, so this is about urinating in swimming pools. So if a pool is chlorinated and uh, you have a wee in it, it creates a chemical called cyanogen chloride. Did you know this? And it's also, it's toxic. Um, it reacts with uh, nitrogen. It's when chlorine reacts with the nitrogen in, in your urine. Mm-hmm. And it acts basically as tear gas. And cyanogen chloride is classified as an agent of chemical warfare. <gasps> so when you have a pee in the swimming pool, you are technically in breach of the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical <laughs> Weapons. You are a war criminal if you, you are, wee yeah, in yeah. the swimming pool. If you don't report it to the OPCW, uh, yeah. then yeah. 
Yeah, well, so like many... a more idealized experiment well, than okay. mine. <laughs> there is a calculation on this as well, and it was to see uh, whether you could produce enough cyanogen chloride in this same Olympic-sized swimming pool that we found that's open on Christmas Day. <laughs> the boiling one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, that would cause a fatal uh, amount of cyanogen chloride to be created. Uh, so this is done by Casey Johnston at Ars Technica, and um, she calculated that what you needed is 2,500 parts per billion. That's a fatal dose of cyanogen mm-hmm. chloride. She said, what it turned out you would need is a swimming pool that was two parts water to one part chlorine. So it's anyway completely <laughs> fatal to <laughs> swim in before you get it. And you also need about three million people to have a pee in it before they were killed by the chlorine in the pool. So we can't put it to military use just yet. Wheel paddling <laughs> pools <laughs> onto the front line. Don't have a pee in them. <laughs> no, no. It does also make a thing called uh, trichloramine, which is another lung irritant. And it makes a tiny bit of chloroform as well. When it, who knew that this much wow. was going on when you had to pee in the pool? There is a way of making Flash's boiling pool work, of course. You have to do just one simple thing to his pool of water yeah. and the people without killing them. All you have to do is raise the pool up a mere 18 kilometres into the air. <laughs> what? <laughs> well, well, 18 kilometres in the air, then water would boil at blood temperature. Oh, well, that's probably perfect. a better solution. So, which would probably be easier, yeah. actually, if you just raised up. It's called the Armstrong limit. We, we've made a breakthrough. I mean, people said this is a stupid. <laughs> it's actually, it's been yeah. very useful. But it, it has been checked because, of course, yeah. when uh, pilots go very high, if above eighteen kilometres, you have to wear a pressure suit, no matter how much oxygen you're getting from an oxygen mask. Because beyond that point, things like your tears and your saliva start to boil. Start boiling. Oh, there that is would be a, incredible. There is a, a recording of an American pilot who said the last thing he remembers before. Uh, blacking out this is going above 18 kilometers without a pressure suit is feeling the uh the sensation of his saliva boiling on his tongue wow that's got to be unpleasant Mm. do you know do you know about boiling in space this is very cool Ah. so this is a thing which hadn't been done obviously for decades because they have more pressing things to do like going (laughs) to the moon but obviously the further up you go the lower the boiling point of water and in the 1990s they did a series of uh experiments on boiling on the space shuttle Uh, And they found out that, you know when you boil a kettle and it has thousands and thousands of bubbles? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When you boil a liquid in space, it just produces one big bubble. No. (laughs) And it hoovers up all the other bubbles. It swallows up all the others. So you just have one massive bubble when your tea is ready. That's so great. That is brilliant. I was listening to a podcast the other day called Smart Enough to Know Better, which is an excellent podcast, really interesting. Um, And they were actually talking about a guy who tries to break records for blowing the biggest bubbles. And he was saying once a bubble goes above five meters in diameter, if you puncture it, it no longer pops, it tears. Isn't that cool? So if you blow a gigantic soap bubble... It won't pop anymore. In in Edinburgh this year, we were after a show called The Amazing Bubble Man. It was a children's show. And it was unbelievably good. We were watching a bit of it through the curtains. Did you feel a bit like a letdown after it? We we couldn't follow it. But thankfully, (laughs) all all his audience were four-year-olds. And all our audience were not four-year-olds. So it was all right. But, oh, man, it was so... So, you know, he fills a bubble with smoke. He sort of injects a bubble hypodermically and then pumps smoke into it and it floats up. And when it pops, it produces this weird cloud of smoke. He has a a sword that can sort of slice bubbles in two. You don't actually need a sword to do that. (laughs) (laughs) You can get implements (laughs) far less difficult to obtain. We'll do the same. That's true. Yeah, it's fascinating. He has a whole... And he sort of puts bubbles on people. You can put bubbles along the arm of a child, for example, Mm -hmm. uh, because they don't have hair on their arm but for an adult with more hair on their arm you can't do that because it doesn't quite work so yeah all sorts of very interesting stuff what a great plug for him I know I know he d- about you can't remember his name he doesn't need it he's hugely successful <laughs> <Does he>? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I looked as well into I don't know if this is kind of grotesque but the business about how the best way to kill a lobster oh yeah uh, and whether because there's a 
there's sharply divided opinion between either Lobsters. You put, them in cold, yeah, <laughs> put them in cold water and bring it up to the heat gradually, uh, and then they sort of go to sleep and then uh, they're anaesthetized and die without knowing it. Or else you plunge them into boiling water and that kills them instantly. Or you stab them in the back, uh, or you don't kill them at all, which is the PETA, Peter, <laughs> position. If you do the PETA method and yeah. don't kill them, they're going to be very feisty on the plate. Yeah. <laughs> the only problem. They are, um. they are, yeah. yeah. We do know what happens if you boil a human alive, though, because there's a description of one. Oh, really? Oh, God. From uh, the reign of Henry VIII, uh, a cook called Richard Roos, who poisoned oh, yeah. uh, the Bishop of Rochester. And he got caught, and he thought, it's a joke, it's a joke. I, just, I gave him a purgative, it's just a joke, a bit funny, you know, give him a runny tummy. Mm. But Henry VIII was incensed and actually put an act of attainder out against him so he could be convicted without trial. Then wow. persuaded the Parliament to make poisoning an act of treason. Then, when he thought it couldn't get any worse, decided the penalty for poisoning would be being boiled alive. So poor old Richard Roos, <laughs> who apparently had just had a bit of a joke with his employer, <laughs> ended up... <laughs> being boiled alive uh, and there's wow. a, uh, someone who was actually watched said uh, he roared mighty loud and diverse women who were big with child did feel sick at the sight of what they saw yeah. and were carried away half dead and other men and women did not seem frightened by the boiling alive but would prefer <laughs> to see the headsman at his work what, so, as in the what yeah, the executioner yeah, the executioner oh. so you know yeah, lots of different views of it it's not did really as good uh, as having his head cut off <laughs> <is> <laughs> it? Did, it, did that catch on as a means of execution or is he, is he unique uh, no, there are a few others. There were actually a few before. It's often said that Henry VIII invented boiling alive. They're actually in Scotland. There are a few. There was uh, a laird uh, somewhat earlier who's uh, upset some of his nobles by apparently being too harsh with them, and they got together and threw him in a kettle. <laughs> and apparently, then to what? prove they were all in it together, they all took a, a glass of the of the stew that wow. they made by boiling their laird alive and drank it. <laughs> <laughs> Do you guys know about the world's deepest swimming pool? I don't know about the world's Don't you? Would you like to? There's not actually that much to say about it, except that I like it because it's called The Deep Joy, um, Mm. which sounds like a quote from one of Samuel Pepys' favourites. But I think this is in Belgium, and you can walk through a tunnel at the bottom of it, and it's the depth of nine or ten double-decker buses, I think. That's really cool. Here's my question, though, about what's the point of having a deep end at all in a swimming pool? Why don't you just make it all sort of a normal height? That's annoying. So you you want to dive <coughs> down. Well, not much, particularly. D- I mean, the thing is, what you want to do is stand on do. your hands and have your feet sticking out, don't you? You could do that at the shallow end, Flash. Some yeah. of us yeah, like to test exactly. our ears. Make it all shallow, otherwise, you have to leave all the other noobs up the shallow end. <laughs> when, and you could have the whole pool, people standing upside down. Flash has been forcibly removed from many public <laughs> pools. <laughs> <laughs> no, but the only point of having it, if you're going to do a very <laughs> pr- steep vertical dive. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, it's I just guess I guess they have to build that into the plans for the pool because they, in case someone misses the sign saying, "Please do not do a steep vertical dive," because oh. following the advice of Piers Fletcher, <laughs> we have made the entire pool a depth it's of only a meter and thirty. Feel free to stand on your head. <laughs> yeah. It makes it really difficult to boil the water, you know, because you get so much more. <laughs> Okay, time for fact number three, and that is my fact. And this is that in Wales, the size of your garden used to be determined by how far you could throw an axe. 
And so this is a uh, tradition in Wales that apparently is very well known. And um, I went to the trouble, because I don't want to offend anyone, of looking up how you pronounce it. And it's called <laughs> T-Unos, uh, which means one night house. And it was this tradition that apparently dates back to the Middle Ages, according to Welsh folklore, which is that if you could build a house within a night and have a fire burning in the hearth and smoke coming out of the chimney by the morning, then you own that property. And then the rule was that you could stand at each of the four corners of your house and throw an axe and the distance that you threw it marked out the boundaries of your property and that's what you owned and they continued doing this up until uh, the 19th century it was never legally i've never found a law yeah. <laughs> it, it was so never a legal was thing it, i think people it, just did it you get quite a big garden throwing an oh axe. no 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 i'm hugely relieved i didn't live in pre-19th century <laughs> wells because i would have had the smallest garden of all <laughs> of my neighbors there's an actual example of a house which is or in fact there are several but there's one in particular that's supposed to be built that way you know about this the snowdonia, the snowdonia one yeah. yes this is where because i went on holiday house. the yeah. ugly house yeah i was in wales last week so saw it and found about out about this thing in an oh, old yeah, book but yeah there is this house in snowdonia called the ugly house which is actually really attractive now oh, in a sort of tumble downy sort of way but it looks like something out of hansel and gretel or something and i think that was made by two brothers in the 15th century was it was that the legend well that's the legend but apparently they think it's more likely to be a 19th century cottage <laughs> yeah <laughs> sounds more likely and the other thing is hill which is the word they translate as ugly it really doesn't mean ugly in welsh it means rugged Oh, really? Yeah. Mm. Much nicer. It yeah. does look rugged. Yeah. yeah. So, well, a load of the houses, the Tiunos houses, were obviously not very good because they'd been built in a night. So, a load of them were <laughs> torn down. <laughs> But then they were replaced later on by more modern cottages on the same site. Can I just nip into your garden, yeah. build a shed overnight, light yeah. a fire in it, throw me axe, and you wake up in the morning to find that I own half your garden. Yeah. And, and then later I build a very nice house on that. A nice conservatory on yeah. the side, and then there's a swimming pool <laughs> yeah. in place of my house when I've gone out. Yeah, look, it happened. I'd welcome you, Justin. Um, well, you, well, no, I was just going to say, you see, it might, uh, it might not be a law, but you can see how it's the kind of thing that people would believe, or at least they'll talk about it in a pub. <laughs> yeah. Apparently, you know, if you do this. Well. And then they can say, oh, let's do it. And they go out and they do it, and everyone would have a laugh, and then they see if they can get away with it. It depends yeah. if anyone notices, I suppose, doesn't it, really? I mean, yeah. there is a law of adverse possession in the UK, which changed so. in 2012, but still exists, whereby if it's called squatter's rights, is sort mm -hmm. of the shorthand for it. And if you own a piece of land and act like the proprietor of it for long enough, then, um, then it can become your land. Do you have to be in it for seven years or something? Twelve years. Well, it, 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 you years. can't now go and score it in someone else's house if it's their home, and then wait for the process. You know, have them appeal to the courts. You can immediately be chucked out for that now. That's good. You could even uh, create your own private beach because you know most of the foreland in mm. Britain is owned by the crown. That's the mm -hmm. bit between, sort of midway between the neap and the spring high tide mark and the ocean, is owned by the crown. But if you wanted your own beach, there are just a couple of simple things you have to do. Find a nice, quiet beach somewhere. Mm -hmm. Put up a sign saying private, keep out, as you often see on beaches, mm -hmm. actually, even mm -hmm. though they're not. Uh, you could put up a little fence. Don't have to, but it's nice to put up a little fence. Just show that you're caring for the land. Roll up your trousers, take your socks off, go for a paddle. And all you have to do is stay there for 60 years and the beach is yours. 60 years? 60 Easy. years of paddling and the beach is yours. Do you know how many Olympic swimming pools you could boil in yeah, that time? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you don't actually have to be literally on the beach all that time. And I do yeah. wonder if those people who put up private beach signs are actually waiting for 60 years to right. be up to then say they now own the foreshore. I wouldn't have the nails to do this before the age of, let's say, 20. So that's you, w yeah. by the age of 80, you'll have a beach. It's a gift for the grandchildren, yeah. isn't it? It's, right, it's like planting right. trees, you Pages know, cubes, stealing yeah. a foreshore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so this thing about throwing a thing and seeing how far it lands, um, I, I looked into it and mm -hmm. I found a book 
called The History of the Germanic Empire, Volume 3, which was published in 1835. Best volume. It's an absolute cracker. <laughs> um, and it describes a load of these customs. So um, a shepherd could see how far he could drive his flock into someone else's forest by throwing his crook oh, as really? far as he could. And then uh, wherever it lands, you can drive your sheep in that far. Or a woodcutter could cut wood according to how far he could throw his axe. Could you only throw it once? or I don't know. The, the, the b- the history of the Germanic Empire, Volume Three, is pretty sketchy on details, <laughs> but I just found this other custom which I thought I had to share with you, which is if you killed someone else's dog to make restitution to them, what you had to do is hang it up by the tail with its nose just touching the ground, and then you had to cover it with wheat so it was completely invisible. So you completely covered the whole dog with wheat, and then that heap of wheat is the compensation that's due to the person whose dog you've killed. Heap of wheat covered in dog carcass. <laughs> it's delicious. If it's a toy dog, yeah. then you're fine. Yeah. You're fine. That's just a small loaf of bread you shove <laughs> it into and you're sorted. The thing about throwing the axe, the way they um, found out what, how much your territorial waters were internationally were how far you could fire a cannon back in the day. In mm. fact, not even all that long ago under international law um, until the mid-20th century, territorial waters were decided were it was f- uh, three nautical miles, which was the length of a cannon shot. No and, way. The, and the idea oh. was that that was the distance that you could dominate the yeah, sea. Defensible Wait, distance. Yeah. You could fire a cannon three miles? Yeah. Yeah. Three nautical miles. Of course you could. 5.6 yeah. kilometres. Wow. Spain claimed six nautical miles, but that was unusual. And the, <laughs> the United Kingdom only extended from three miles to 12 in 1987. Oh, really? Wow. What, when we suddenly got a cannon upgrade? Got a bigger gun. Yeah. These <laughs> days, you've got cruise missiles, which can go okay. quite a long way, so you yeah. could make a pretty well, good right. claim. Yeah. So I think that doesn't work anymore. But that's, yeah. how it w- that's how it was. Wow. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So it's actually such a... Se- and you presumably these Welsh guys were saying, well, I can defend this house <laughs> as far as I can throw this axe. <laughs> <laughs> but then yeah. you have to go out and get the axe from yeah. a limitless... Axe is still a big deal in, in North Wales. Is it? Yeah, apparently. In fact, I tell you, here's the interesting thing. At this moment, there is a thing ha- taking place which is called the Good Life Experience on the Hawarden Estate in North Wales. And Keris Matthews runs an annual axe-throwing competition there. I know who that is, yeah, she's but I singer. don't. Cat- you know, Catatonia. Catatonia. Yeah, and, and the thing is, that it's Karis Matthews and some other people, but she's the only yeah. one I'd heard of, so it's Karis <laughs> Matthews. Well, it's, wow, a, it's becoming good. a trend here, and James Harkin, formerly of this podcast, has <laughs> done axe throwing with his wife, Polina, and said it was the best one he's ever had. Well, I think there's wow. one in Shoreditch. The best, but <laughs> he lives a quiet well, life. He should read Peeps. <laughs> <laughs> But they are still, apparently, uh, people still use tomahawks in a military sense. Wh- in certain no. Wars. This is well, true. Cruise missiles are called tomahawks, <laughs> of course. <laughs> so, I think in the Korean War, people actually brought throwing axes as part of their gear. The Americans brought throwing axes. Here's the thing about tomahawks, mm-hmm. which I did not know, is that loads of Native American tomahawks had hollow handles and oh, could yeah. be used uh, to smoke through. And basically, if, if you know some Native Americans met uh, some white settlers, it could go one you of two ways. This end or <laughs> yeah. this end. You yeah. use the axe either to hit them, or you sort of you come to some sort of agreement, and then you smoke together to seal the deal. Oh, amazing! In the film, you, he'd be coming up. There, you see the shadow of this shape, and be holding it up, and then you cut, and it's a Sorry. peace pipe. <laughs> <laughs> Cigar. That would work. Um, this is so random, but I discovered since we're talking about America and Wales that the first Welsh settler in America was called Howell Powell. Howell Powell, I like that. But anyway, I was actually going to talk about um, squatting in America generally. In 2004, a woman in Georgia came home from a holiday and there was a car in her drive 
and all the lights were on in her house. And so she went into her house and there was a stranger in there, a woman who was wearing all this woman's clothes. <gasps> she changed all her utility bills into her name. She'd installed a washing machine and she'd installed a dryer and she'd moved her dog in. <laughs> and this woman had just moved in, pretended to be her. So the lady arrived home and said, get out of my house. And we have no idea why she did that. She'd ripped out a carpet. She didn't like how one room was painted. So she repainted what, what it. What happened? She went to prison. Well, the which one did? <laughs> right for homeowner. I mean, that's, oh. a, that's a film, isn't it? You know, yes. the, whose house is it? This is? lunatic turned up claiming to be me, and what's my house? That's a know. good telly format. Is yeah. who actually owns the house? Who's and house? you get the two claimants, and you have to ask them questions about well, where oh, are brilliant. the switches if a light goes? Yeah, the trip switches. Sort of you know, squatting through the keyhole. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> who would squat in a house like, like this? this? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, we should move on to our final fact, and that is from Andy. My fact is that some caterpillars find new friends by drumming on their anuses. Work on me. Yeah. Uh, so this actually, this fact was sent in by somebody, uh, by Gorish Chawla. Uh, so thank you very much for sending us in. I liked it so much. Uh, this is the masked birch caterpillar, and it lives on birch leaves, and it spins cocoons out of silk. But sometimes they <laughs> need a lot of caterpillars to join in the silk cocoon uh, ceremony and uh, maintain their hiding place. So what they do is they do anal drumming. So they bang their anuses on the ground, they drum their anus on the leaf, and it summons the other caterpillars. Right. And they, but they're very versatile, because also, if they have rivals and they want to scare a rival away sometimes, then they will do anal scraping. That's different from anal drumming. Oh, yes. Anal, <laughs> as we all know. Um, so they have a thing called an anal awe. Um, and uh, anal they or what? <laughs> 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 Not a choice I want to be presented with you. <laughs> If you don't have a very strong musical ear as a caterpillar mm. and you misinterpret the come hither for the trouble. police, then, yeah, you're really in trouble. Yeah. Well, mm. the thing is that you, there's a recording of this thing online. Uh, uh, you, you found that. But there's the woman who researches it says you can't really hear it, but it, 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 if you get a laser vibrometer, you hear this crazy rumbling sound. They actually sound like lions. They're <laughs> really <laughs> tiny yeah. lions. She's called Jane Yak, this researcher, and she says... They talk to themselves with their asses as well. Talking with their butts even when they were alone. When feeding, they go chomp, 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 anal scrape. Chomp, <laughs> chomp, chomp. <laughs> anal Nothing unusual about that. Um, I don't get invited to many dinner parties. <laughs> <laughs> the Alcon Blue Caterpillar also makes a scraping noise, but not for other caterpillars. It makes a scraping noise that um, red ants mistake for a queen red ant. And it releases uh, a sort of a, uh, a chemical that smells like them as well. So the red ants then take the caterpillar into their ant hill, kick out the actual queen <laughs> ant. The caterpillar sits there eating the larvae, to which the ants don't seem at all bothered because it smells like a queen. It looks like what doesn't really look <laughs> like a queen, but it smells like a queen. It's making a queeny sort of noise. Uh, right up until the moment when it pupates and it stays in there, protected by the ants, then it bursts out, at which point all the ants go, wait a minute, because <laughs> there's a butterfly in the middle of their anthill, which is unusual. Yeah. But they're covered in really loose scales when they uh, come out. So the ants make a grab for it, and all the scales just come off, and it just climbs out Whoa. and flies away. Brilliant. That's amazing. Is brilliant. Is our own queen actually the queen yeah. or is she oh, just an queen, enormous yeah. caterpillar well, imagine if one year for the state opening of parliament she comes out and she seems to be all covered in these loose scales yeah, well, I mean, oh, what's going on there all those and lords <laughs> <laughs> yeah. do you know they have carnivorous uh, caterpillars in Hawaii what do they eat they, they beef eat snails they trap the snail in the silken noose and then they eat it alive because they the snail can't move and they the caterpillar sort of goes into the hole 
the front door, as it were, and the snail tries to withdraw further and further into its own mm. shell, and then it runs out of space and then gets eaten alive no. and they eat the whole thing. That's oh. a rough way to go, packed into a yeah. corner. Yeah. The man they who discovered this, he said, called D Daniel Rubinoff, he said, almost all insects are predators, but to find a caterpillar going after a snail is a real shock. It's like finding a wolf diving for clams. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll have to take his well, word for that, I suppose, because he's the expert. <laughs> but that would be a shock. Yeah. That would be a If I was a snail, I would have a trapdoor in the back of my yeah. shell. Or a panic uh, room. <laughs> which yes. marine shells yeah. do. They have an operculum. They have a little trap door they can close up their shell. Speaking of <laughs> the words back door, mm, oh no, I have a fact about, because this is a fact it's about anal drumming, mm. I have a fact about the giant California sea cucumber. Okay, mm. It's a lovely organism, lives, on, lives on the, in the ocean, and it uses its anus as a mouth in spite of already having a mouth. <laughs> what does it use its mouth for? It uses its mouth as a mouth. And Very it, greedy. But, but then when there's food around, it sort of says, oh, I'll have a bit, in, have a bit of my bum <laughs> well, too. Both ends. Why not? Yeah. yeah. It, has a, it has this series of tubes which go up from its bottom, and it gets water in through those tubes, and it sucks the oxygen out of the water. That's how it gets its oxygen. But it also has these blood vessels, and they found that food has been making its way through these blood vessels from the bottom. So that's how they eat their food. Brilliant. Um, on anuses, actually, I was reading about scorpions' anuses. Yeah. And um, scorpions sometimes lose their anuses in, uh, you know, some creatures do autotomy, auto autotomy yeah. yes. Yeah. But the problem with scorpions, these particular scorpions, is that they commit autotomy. So if you threaten them from behind, then they drop their tail off. But their anus is at the end of their tail. So oh. once they've done that, they can no longer defecate. Um, and <laughs> or, so or sting. Or, or sting, indeed. Yeah, so they yeah. just wave around uh, randomly a little butt. In fact, the guy who discovered this, uh, a guy called Matoni, said that once it had lost its tail, he could see the build-up of fecal oh, matter dear. in the back of it. Yeah, until they've got a photograph of it, haven't they? Yeah. 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 So they, and, they, and they can't grow it back? They can't grow it back. The thing is, they can breed in the, before they die, see what I mean? They, it they, it right. takes them so long to die that they can, they've got, they can bring up a family right. and pay the school fees. So it's no problem. It's not a good chat-up line, mind. though. It's not a good chat-up line. There is, <laughs> it's like losing your hair. But you can still breed before you die. <laughs> yeah. yeah. In, in principle. <laughs> <laughs> there is a tiny species of jawworm, which doesn't have a common name, it's called Haplonathia, which has a transient anus. Most of the time, it doesn't have a bottom. It eats things, and when it needs a bottom, a bottom <laughs> appears for a while. Whoa. It uses the bottom, and then the bottom goes away again. That's so useful. Yeah, transient and anus. What Think an how useful that would be. I can imagine supermodels wanting to invest in that sort of thing, because an anus <laughs> is not actually that appealing uh, body part. Oh. I know th they say a lot of things would be a good name for a band, but transient <laughs> anus would be a fantastic name for a band. Mopani worms. Do you Go know on. The, the larvae mm. of the emperor moth. It said in the thing I read, commonly eaten in Africa. But Africa is always used to mean just this, like, abroad, mm. really. And um, you eat it by squeezing it like a tube of toothpaste and then giving a quick flick of the wrist to expel the slimy green contents of the gut. And it's a nutritious oh. snack. And there was a bloke who was caught at Gatwick with a big, <laughs> with a big four sacks of these um, things which were confiscated and destroyed. And the customs said they were worth £40,000. What? Wow. I know, but I looked up the cost, and you could buy 40 gram tin for £16.99 online, which means that if it really was 40 grams worth, this is in 2013, it must have, he must have been carrying the same weight as a baby elephant. I yeah. saw that. I think it was about 100 kilos. And he claimed that they were for personal consumption. <laughs> <laughs> he, said, he said exactly that. Yeah. Yeah. 
How was he getting that much into uh, into the luggage? You just pack your backpack really densely. Yeah. You can you can get away with a lot. You cannot it. squeeze that into one of those tiny little wire containers at the EasyJet check-in. Well, he didn't. Uh, I don't. <laughs> it may not have been hand luggage. This was an unusual seizure, but the vigilance of our officers has stopped these dried instruments from, <laughs> <laughs> from entering the UK. Hooray! And possibly posing a risk to our food chain. <laughs> Ingrid Smith, <laughs> a spokesman for the UK Border Agency. I love the you. idea that you need vigilance to spot 100 yeah. kilos <laughs> of dried caterpillars <laughs> in sacks. <laughs> Okay, that's all of our facts for today. If you'd like to get in contact with any of us here, you can get in touch with the others on Twitter. Andy's on... At Andrew Hunter M. Justin. At Justin Pollard. Flash. At Piers Fletcher. Wow, they all have Twitter accounts. I didn't think either of you would. What's your account? Uh, My account is an email address, which is podcast.qi.com, or you can go to Podcast, which is our group account, or listen to any of our previous episodes at nosuchthingsafish.com, or any of the first 52 are available to buy on iTunes if you look up First Year of Fish. That's all for this week. See you again next week. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.